So we are still going through our sermon series on uh, discipleship, growing to look more like Jesus. That's the one goal of every single disciple, everyone that has trusted in Jesus. The one thing we all have in common and that we're marked by is that God wants us to look more and more like his son. And that is a that you never reach a point in your life where you're just there. Uh, but we're always progressing and looking more and more like him. And that will be completed when he comes back. And so if you could grab your copies of God's word, grab your Bibles, your devices and meet me in Second Kings. I'm a little eager to get into the word of God today to see what God will say to us. Second Kings. Jump back into the Old Testament. As you're turning there, uh, last week, as a recap, last week we got to look at some discipleship nuggets through Paul and Timothy's relationship and really just pull out some practical application that we could apply to our lives and unpack uh, what their relationship looked like. But I think it's important for you to understand as you're turning to Second Kings, it's important for you to understand that discipleship in the New Testament or in the scriptures period, but it's more prevalent in the New Testament, discipleship is a huge deal. I mean, in fact, if you look through the New Testament and you look at what believers were called in the first century, so we all say Christians now, but in the scriptures in the New Testament, Christians was only used three times. That's it, three times. And then they were also called followers of the way. I love that, by the way. But they were called followers of the way, and that was only used four times in the New Testament. Do you know what the prevalent name for a believer was in the New Testament? Disciples. 269 times in the New Testament, most of them, majority of them were in the Gospels, but 269 times you'll see the word discipleship used to mark believers. It is a big deal. And if that isn't affirmation enough for you, Jesus commanded us to make disciples in Matthew 28. And if Jesus commands us to make disciples, we need no other affirmation that the, that the discipleship making, the discipleship process is a big deal. And so that is why we wanted to spend a few weeks to talk about what is discipleship? Why is it necessary? Why is it important? And so if you have uh, Second Kings at hand, if you could pick me up in verse number two, uh, actually verse number one in chapter two. Uh, I have 15 verses. I'll read, I'll, I'll announce our theme, and then I'll pray. Verse number one. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elijah said, as, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophet who were at Bethel, came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? He said, yes, I know. Keep quiet. Now, the next couple of verses are going to sound redundant because the same thing is going to happen in a different city. Verse number four, Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophet who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from you? And he answered them, yes, I know. Keep quiet. Verse six. Then Elisha said to him, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives, this is the third time he says this, as the Lord lives, 
and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of prophet also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Verse 8, then Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water. And the water was parted to one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry land. When they had crossed, Elisha said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Verse 10, and he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken up from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elisha went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried. Note this intimacy here. Underline this, if you will. My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. And he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood at the bank of Jordan. And he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and he struck the water saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other. And Elisha went over. Verse 15, our last verse. Now, when the sons of prophet who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bow to the ground before him. I want to briefly talk this morning from the topic or the theme, discipleship replication. Discipleship replication. Let's pray. Once again, Lord, we gather ourselves uh, around your word to feast from the nutrients of your word. Uh, Father, we echo the words of Peter this morning when he says, you have the words of eternal life. And so, Father, because you have the words of eternal life, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, speak directly to our lives. One of the things I love most, Lord, about your word is that we all in this room could come in here with different issues and different problems and different successes and different whatever. But whatever the case may be, you you have a unique way of meeting all of us with the same seed, with the same word. That's your Holy Spirit at work. And Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work and move upon uh, our hearts, but also um, our intellect as well. Would you use our brains and our hearts to meet us in a, in a unique way today? Pray that your son, Jesus Christ, would be glorified today and that his fame and his fame alone would be rung throughout this building. It is in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Discipleship replication. Comedian Robin Harris, best known for his stand-up. I don't know if you know him. You will know him in a second. Best known for his uh, HBO stand-up in, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. Also was the father in House Party. Y'all remember the follow the drip, follow the drip? That's Robin Harris. Anyway, so Robin Harris, he, he influenced a movie that was released in 1993 called Baby's Kids. Y'all remember, see, y'all don't remember nothing else but Bebe's Kids, but he released a movie that was in, that he influenced, at least, uh, called Bebe Kids in 1993. Originally, this movie was 
supposed to be a, a just a regular film, but it turned it, in, it turned into being an animated uh, film, an animated motion picture, because Robin Harris died during the pre-production process. The film would, uh, was known regularly for these kids that were extremely bad. This guy that wanted to date the kid's mother, and the kids would just annoy this father. They would, they, I mean, they would just drive this father crazy, and they would say things like, we're baby's kids. Or they were best known for their famous line, and if you know it, completed. We don't die; we we multiply. Multiplication and re, re, uh, replication is what I want to spend our time talking about today. Hear me, Christians do not die; we multiply. I've always wanted to use baby kids in a sermon, so that's the best I got this morning. Christians don't; we don't die. I mean, this is a a a religion, a, a following of Jesus Christ that has been prevalent for years and transcends decades and, and centuries and ethnicities. And so it is through discipleship that this continues, though. God converts, he saves people, and then our job is to disciple who God has saved. And in our passage this morning, we're given a glimpse of the mighty works of God through two prophets, through Elijah and through Elisha. If I get them mixed up, you'll know the difference between the two if you just jump back into the text that I'm in. So at the conclusion of our time today, though, I do not want us to walk away and rejoice merely over the miracles that happened here, but I want us to rejoice over the God that's able to perform the miracles that we see in our text. Please note that what we see, the miracles we see in this text, you normally don't see these miracles happening in modern time. That does not mean that God cannot perform these miracles. It just means for some reason he's not. Our text today serves as a descriptive text. What does that mean? God is describing to us through 2 Kings, he's describing to us what, ha- what took place in this time. He's, this is not a prescriptive text, meaning he's not telling us what should be happening in this time. He's describing his power at, at work in the old times. And regardless of this fact, the, this chapter and this passage reminds us today that we serve a God that is transcendent and he's imminent. He's transcendent, meaning he's big, he's above us, he is in con- complete control of the universe, but he's also near and dear to us. Now, what you'll notice in verses one through six is a little bit of a redundancy in what is happening between Elijah and Elisha. But this is what I really want you to pick up in verses one through six is the test of of the disciples' commitment to the Lord. The test of the disciples' commitment to the Lord. Pick me up in verse number one. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Watch what Elijah says to him. Elijah says to Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elijah said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The sons of the prophet who were in Bethel came to Elisha, Elijah, Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master? Talking about Elijah. And he said, yes, I know. Keep quiet. What we just read in these verses and and what these verses call our attention to is what occurred and what took place before the main prophet, which was Elijah with the J, was taken up to heaven. This is what is about to occur. And what we see is it is the prophet of Israel, which is 
Elijah is, has an enormous responsibility of being the main mouthpiece for God for his chosen people. Now, this type of responsibility is, is not easily transferred over to some young buck that doesn't know what they're doing. But that person that he's transferring the title and the position of being a prophet of Israel must be tested. He must test them. And so what does he say to him to test them? He says, stay here. Now, keep in mind, Elisha at this point has spent months with the main prophet, Elijah. He has walked with him. He's, he's spent time with him. He's seen him do some things already. If you go back to first Kings, you'll see how they walked together. But what Elijah is doing here is Elijah is saying, would this young prophet be as good in the mile as he was in the hundred yard dash? Would he be good in the long term as he was in the beginning? And so in order for me to find that out, what am I going to do? I got to test him. Stay here while the Lord calls me to go somewhere else. Verse two, verse four and verse six all record the exact same statement and the exact same request that the main prophet had for his young disciple. He says here in verse two and four and six, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. Our text does not explicitly tell us why Elijah told him to stay there. It doesn't tell us why he told him that. And most people believe that he's telling him to stay here and not go where the Lord was telling him to go because he wanted to test him. Because if he would stay in Bethel, if he would stay in Jericho, if he would not, if he would not go to Jordan as the main prophet was doing, what Elijah would have picked up through discipleship is that he wasn't ready. Why was he not ready? Because the Lord has commanded us to go. But you heard me say, stay, and you stayed. See, good discipleship always follows the Lord, not man. That's, that's good discipleship. And three times Elisha tells him, I can't do that. In fact, he, he uses a, a double oath to show his tenacity towards following the Lord and following the prophet. He uses a double oath. He says, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. In discipleship, the testing of loyalty and obedience to the Lord is always important. And so if you're discipling somebody, if you're walking with an immature believer to maturity, you must test them not to see if they're loyal to you, but to see if they're loyal to the Lord. You know why that's important? Because if they're loyal to the Lord, they'll be loyal to you as well. If they're not loyal to the Lord, you can forget them being loyal to you. Galatians 1, 8, I love this. This is what Paul says. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you. Let them be accursed. Paul says, if an angel, if a host of angels come down right now, preach to you a different gospel than what we preach, the true gospel, let him be accursed. What we're seeing is Paul is saying, just like Elisha is saying, follow God, not man. Stay here. And Elisha says, I will not. And so we see obedience is a huge part. No one and nothing should be able to break your obedience to the Lord. Nothing. Because disobedience to the Lord always brings consequence. Don't get it twisted. You may get away with it for a while. But at some point, disobedience always, always, always catches up to us. In 2013, 
my wife and I were celebrating our 11th year anniversary. And so we, tr- we decided to do something different. We went on a, on a sushi date. Now, that doesn't sound that different, but this was a different sushi date because I'm thinking that my wife is, is making reservations for us to go sit down at a high-end restaurant in Philadelphia I did not know I was going to actually make my own sushi. And so I get there and they have all of these ingredients around. Anybody that knows me knows if I'm paying money for food, I don't want to make it. I, I'm expecting that someone else is going to make it. But whatever, we were married 11 years and I wanted to keep being married. So I said, <laughs> whatever you want, hon. And, 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 and just a note for you husbands in here, always just defer to the wife. If whatever she wants to do, just do it, especially on your anniversary. Anyway, so we get there and... The instructor that was, this sushi uh, chef was a, like a top sushi maker in Philadelphia. And so we get there, this place called Pod, and we sit down, we have all these ingredients, we have the rock, like a pile of rice, we have some seaweed, we have some other stuff, vegetables and stuff we're supposed to put in. And there's a whole class of people, and I'm sitting there listening to the instructions from the instructor, and somewhere along the line, I begin to drift off. And I said, man, I'm going to improvise. I don't know what this guy is talking about. I don't know how long he's been making sushi, so I'm going to just make my own sushi. So I started to take, um, just take my coat off. I started to take uh, this, um, the, these ingredients, and I started to pile in the rice. I started to put rice in. I started to, so I, the seaweed was flat. I started to crumble it up. I was like, I'm going to make me a little something here. You know, I, I was improvising, and I looked over at Ty's, and Ty's was all nice and neatly rolled. She was following every instruction, nice and neatly rolled up. And I'm looking at everybody else in the class, and everybody else was all nice and neatly. So it was time for me to roll mine, but I stuffed it so much, I literally could not roll it. So by the time I finally finished rolling it, half of it was like lumpy. It was disproportioned on one side. Half of it had no meat. The point I'm making is, in that moment, the problem wasn't with the instructor. The instructor was the top sushi chef in Philadelphia. The problem wasn't with his instructions. How do I know that? Because I looked along the line in the class and everyone followed instructions. The problem was that one of us was obedient to the instructions and one of us wasn't. And so what happened at the end of disobedience, I had a mess on my plate while everyone else got to enjoy their food. And lack of obedience always leads to a waste of time. Lack of obedience always leads to bring you through unnecessary trials. Lack of obedience always leads to wasted money. I could not eat that. I had to, I had to share Thai's food. And so lack of obedience, it, it, always, it always messes you up. And so the prophet says, stay here. Don't go to, with me to Jericho. Don't go with me to the Jordan. And what we see when he says that is Elisha says, I can't do that. Why can't I do that? I love you as, as my disciple maker, but I love Jesus more. So I got to follow and be obedient to what God is saying. There's something else I want you to pick up in the text, though. Notice here that Elisha wasn't just committed to serving God, but he was also equally committed to serving others. Why do I say that? Because he doesn't just say, as the Lord lives, I won't leave you. He says, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live. So what the young prophet would have realized is that in these cities that the main prophet was going to, he was going to need help. And so before leadership kicked in for the young prophet, he had to serve. 
That's a very important factor within leadership. I love leaders that serve. That, I mean, leadership to me is just servanthood leadership. No leader should be exalted as your pastor, the pastor of this church. I should not be exalted. I should serve. That is my main job. And I'm always leery of anybody that wants leadership that never has, has the ability to follow anybody. And you know you're, you're going to be a good leader when you're able to follow a leader that you may not agree with. See, you, what we do is we complain like we'll do it better. But the truth is we must be humble enough to submit ourselves. And so what you see here is Elisha saying, I got to follow not just the commandments of the Lord, but I have to follow the prophet because he needs help. So I'm going to go and I'm going to go serve him and serve him well. Jesus is this type of a leader. Read Matthew chapter 28 verse, actually Matthew chapter 20 verse number 28. This is what Jesus says. The son of man came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom. And Jesus' servanthood led him all the way to the cross. And so what we want to do is we want to stand up. We want to be in the spotlight. We want to lead in front of people. But behind closed doors, we have bad following skills. Not Elisha. He said, no, no, no. I'm going to follow you. I can't, I can't at some point lead the other 50 prophets, which we're going to see later on in the text. I can't lead them unless I first know how to follow you. There's something else. One last thing I need to point out in verses one through six. Also note the opposition, that opposition did not stop the prophet from following the main prophet. It did not stop him. Look at verse number three and verse number five. They both say the same thing. So I'm just going to read one of them. Verse number three says, and the sons of the prophet who were at Bethel came to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away from your master, take your master away from you? And he says, yes, I know. Keep quiet. And so what was happening is these sons of the prophet, which we're going to define who they are. The sons of the prophet are now trying to detour the commitment of the disciple leave from his disciple maker. They're saying he's old. The Lord is about to take him to heaven. Why are you still following him. And I can promise you, if there's nothing else I can promise you, I can promise you that when you start to walk in obedience and when you really start to walk in discipleship, there will always be people that try to detour you. They don't want you to grow. There will always be people that say, well, you should do it this way. We should, you should take my suggestion. You should do it this way. They will always try to take you off of your commitment. But what is our response needs to be Elisha's response. Look at what he says in verse number three, the end of it. Yes, I know. Keep quiet. I love that. Because basically what he, this is the, when he says keep quiet, this is the strongest language that he would have known. This is equivalent to us saying, yeah, I know. Shut up. That's basically what he's saying. And he says it multiple times because what he is doing is he is focused on being obedient to God, but also focused on not breaking his discipleship process with the one that is discipling him. I don't know if people are bothered or offended by the fact that you're growing, but when I, I can promise you that people, not everybody's excited about it. Not everybody's excited about the things that you're talking about, the, the growth that you have. People, not even family members will sometimes be excited about what you are growing and, and the, the awareness and the consciousness of God over your life. People are not excited about that. And so what you need to do is don't be taken by the crowd. 
Don't let the crowd shake you because this didn't shake Elisha's resolve. He was focused on the mission at hand. Now let's discuss these 50 sons of the prophet. Who are the sons of the prophet or some translations may say the school of prophets. Verse number seven, we'll talk to us about that. Verse number seven, 50 men of the sons of prophet also went and stood at some distance from them. And they were both standing by the Jordan, talking about Elijah and Elisha. Who are the sons of the prophet? Now, often in the Old Testament, especially with the prophets, what you'll see is disciples normally considered themselves sons. And the disciple maker, they often call father. That's why in verse number 12 of our same text, what does Elisha say when he sees Elijah taken up? My father, my father. Actually, to underline that, because what we see is an affirmation of who these sons of the prophet are. They are 50 men that Elijah is discipling, which brings up a point that I brought up last week. Discipleship normally in the scriptures is not just one on one. So when you look at this, you're thinking, well, Elijah and Elisha, that's one on one discipleship. But what you see is the young prophet Elisha is a part of a school of prophets, 50 people. So at least 51, at least in this text, 51 people are being discipled by Elijah. Now that's important because what we do is we say, I'm not being discipled unless I'm sitting across the table from you having coffee. If it's not just one-on-one, I'm not being discipled. Not so. That's not even the prevalent model in the scriptures. I talked to you about it last week. Jesus didn't do that type of discipleship. He had 12, he had three, he had 120, he invested. And what happens with replication and multiplication is it's a lot quicker to make sure more disciples are being made when you're discipling a group of people versus one-on-one. So if, if me and one person are in the discipleship and they go disciple another person and that person goes disciple, it's less replication than if me and 50 people are in discipleship. And then those 50 people go and each disciple 50 more people. Now, that's a, I'm using an extreme number, but whatever, you can put whatever number. It could be you and five people. But whatever the case may be, we must be passionate, not just about individual discipleship, but about group discipleship. Why? Because replication happens a lot quicker when you do it that way. And so, yes, that is a model, one-on-one discipleship. But what we see is Elisha, the young disciple, emerges among 50 to be considered the successor of Elijah. So that's a good, 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 very, very important practical nugget for us in discipleship. What are these sons of the prophet doing, though? Look at verse number seven. 50 men of the sons of prophet also went and stood at some distance and they were both standing by the Jordan. And so these 50 men, which by the way, over and over again, tried to knock Elisha off from being consistent in his walk with discipleship. These 50 men are now standing at some way and they're watching the two prophets at the Jordan, which is important because what you'll pick up within your own spiritual walk is that people are watching it. People are often watching you. We think we're going through life and nobody's watching. You think that Christianity is just profession. It's, that's a piece of Christianity. Christianity is also demonstration. You can't just say the gospel. You got to live the gospel. 
So Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be counted worthy of the gospel. People are watching to see if you are truly a changed person as you profess. Don't profess something and live another way. Because what that does is people are able to say, see, because here's the truth of the matter is nobody can see if you're really a changed person by your profession. And so, yes, God can see our heart, but people should see our walk. People should see that you are a changed person. You people should be able to say, man, listen, before they even shared the gospel with me, I knew they was a believer because I saw their walk. And people are watching. Don't get it twisted. James 2, 14 says, what is good? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says to you that I have faith but does not have work? I'm always confused when I meet somebody and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm walking with the Lord. Yeah, I trust Jesus, but their life doesn't line up with it. Let that not be us in this room. Why? Because people are watching. Hear me. Your unbelieving family is watching. Your co-workers that do not know Jesus is watching. And it's crazy because we, instead of calling them to a spiritual place, they call us to carnality. And we just walk right into it. Don't lower your standards for an unbeliever. Make them raise their standards to your standards. People are watching. Your co-workers are watching. People you turned up with last night are watching. It's funny, but it's true. Like, we want to say, I'm a believer, but we do the same exact thing that our unbelieving friends do. Tax season is coming up. What do we do? We cheat on our taxes, just like everybody else that don't know Jesus. People are watching your walk. And so these 50 sons of the prophet are standing off by the Jordan, and they're standing off in a distance, and they're watching the two prophets, watching them. Now, let's see what happens after they watch them. Verse number seven. 50 men of the sons of prophet also went and stood at some distance from the Jordan. And as they were standing there, they were watching. Verse number eight. Then Elijah Elijah took up his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water. And the water was parted from one side to another, to the ground, till till the two of them could go over on dry ground. Verse number nine. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask What I shall do for you before I am taken up. This is so important because think about this. Elijah just parted the Jordan River, which, by the way, is affirmation that God is with him, which brings an affirmation for when the young prophet does it later on. This is the same Jordan that Joshua was standing in front of. When Joshua was standing in front of the Jordan and his way of showing that he now takes the mantle that Moses had was to part the Red Sea. The exact same thing is happening here with the two prophets. And so what you see is the prophet says, the prophet says, I'm going to roll up this cloak. I'm going to part this Red Sea. And after I do it, he says to his young disciple, before I die, ask me whatever you want. Now, consider you're standing with Elijah and you just see this C part. Like, our response is going to be like, I want money in the bank. I want a home. I want some cars. Like, because, I mean, you just saw the prophet do something that nobody else is able to do. If he asks you, what do you want? Certainly, you're going to ask for a stack in the bank. You're not going to ask for nothing spiritual. Let's just be honest. We're not going to ask for spiritual things. But Elisha does. Elisha does not ask for prominence. He does not ask for position. He doesn't even, he doesn't ask for any of that. He doesn't ask for money. 
Look at what Elisha responds to in verse number 10. Verse number nine, the end part of it. He says, Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Elisha does not ask for position. What Elisha asks for is for God's spirit to be on him as Elijah is going to be taken away so that he can be the man of God, the prophet of Israel, a good prophet of Israel. He asked for the spirit of God to be on him. When's the last time we've asked for that type of stuff? Like spirit, just dwell in me. Let me, let me impact an entire nation because of you. Let me lead these 50 sons of prophet that are now going to look to me. Verse 15 says that they're now going to look to me. I need your spirit. He does not ask for anything else. He asks, he says the same spirit that controls you. I pray that you would let that spirit be on me. And that was not something that Elijah can do. That is why in verse number 10, he says, and you, he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken up from you, it'll be so for you. Verse number 11. And as they went, as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses a fire separated the two of them. And Elisha went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel. Let, let's, let's be honest that this is a very unique, like we've never seen a, the, the sky open up and chariots of fire come down. Like if, that's why I said this is descriptive and not prescriptive. Because if I'm in a counseling session and a young man comes into the office and says, man, I had a great day. I was walking with my friend and, and he got taken up by chariots of fire. I'm going to say, like, are you smoking weed? Like, what's happening in this moment? That's not a normal practice. And so, I, again, I do not want us to walk away and look at this and say, okay, that should be happening now. No, this is descriptive, but don't get it twisted. God can still do this. Verse number 13, and he took up his cloak, the cloak of Elijah, that had fallen and went back and stood at the bank. So now Elijah, the main prophet is gone and Elisha is now about to be, he's now about to be affirmed. But the affirmation God uses is to do the exact same thing that the main prophet did. This is why it's discipleship replication because he's doing the same thing. Verse number 14. And he took the cloak of Elisha that had fallen from him and he struck the water saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Please know that he does not like his, though he just was intimate saying, my father, my father, he does not in this moment, roll up the cloak, strike the water and then say, where was Elijah? Notice that he asks for the Lord God of Elijah, because what the young prophet now realizes is that if he is going to be a main prophet, and if he is going to successfully walk with the Lord, he needs the power of the Lord to part this, this Jordan. This isn't some intellectual, this is what I was taught from Elijah. No, he saw the power of God work through Elijah and he said, where is the Lord, the God, Lord God of Elijah? Not where is Elijah? And this is a very important, very important point for us because what we see here is replication. We see multiplication. And if you are discipling anybody and you do not see fruit from that discipleship, you must either check how you're discipling or you must move on because you don't have time to waste on people. This is why I said it's very unhealthy to get into a discipleship process with somebody that is unteachable because what you'll end up doing is wasting time. 
Elisha wasn't unteachable. He does exactly what Elijah is doing. You know how many young people in this neighborhood right now could use somebody to share the gospel with them and then walk with them from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity? We have an undiscipled generation of people. If Elijah wasn't producing fruit, that would have been a whole generation that, was, that didn't have somebody speaking for them as God did. As the, as the prophet, main prophet did. And so what happens is when we don't disciple, there is a generation after us that will grow up and not know the Lord. It's very important that we disciple. Let's keep going. Verse number 14, when he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, he said, where is the Lord, the God of, Israel, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, note the same thing happens. The water was parted to one side and to the other, and Elisha goes over. Verse number 15, and when the sons of prophet who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said to him, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. So this now, this serves as confirmation that he is now the new prophet. Bible says, and they came to meet him and they bowed on the ground before him. And so what you see here is the same sons of prophet that were trying to throw him off track are now bowing before him. Not worshiping him, but worshiping the God that he is representing. And so this is very important for us. This is why Jesus tells us to make disciples, because this is how the work of Christianity continues. Some of us in this room are too on our grind and too self-absorbed in our own life to actually walk with somebody else. When's the last time you had somebody over your house to walk with them and share with them the things of God? When is the last time that happened in your house or in your world? But what we do is we say, no, this is, this is a personal thing for me. I'm, a, I'm on my grind. I don't have time for nothing else. I'm trying to make it myself. But this is a very important. That's why it's used 269 times in the New Testament. Make disciples, make disciples. And note, when Jesus tells us to make disciples, he does not tell us to make converts. You, have, you don't have it in you to convert anybody. Conversions is God's responsibility. Making disciples is yours. Making disciples is mine. And so when God converts, when he uses the cross of Jesus Christ to convert somebody. In the cross of Jesus Christ, on the cross, Jesus stands condemned in your place. Jesus covers you from the wrath of God. I was on a flight down to Richmond, Virginia a couple years ago. And when we were flying in, we were flying, I was flying in through a storm. And so when we were started to land, you know, you go through the clouds and you can see the rain bouncing off of the windows on the airplane. And so I'm like, man, I'm thinking to myself, I don't have an umbrella. That's what I'm thinking. And so beyond thinking, man, I hope we can land safely. I'm also thinking I don't have an umbrella. So we finally land and I look out the window and it's, it's pouring rain outside. And then I get my stuff and I get off the airplane. I walk through Richmond, Virginia airport and then... I get outside and there's a canopy over the outside. Before you don't just go straight outside into the rain, there's a canopy that covers you. And so I'm sitting up under the canopy waiting for the guy that's supposed to pick me up. He picks me up. I get in the car. I'm looking outside at the rain. We, we go through the drive-thru at Starbucks. We grab coffee because you, you know I'm just not going nowhere without that. So we grab coffee. 
Then we go to the hotel, and when we pull up to the Hilton, the Hilton has a canopy. So then I, we pull under the canopy, I get my bags, I go and check in, I go up to the room, and the first thing I do is I open the windows to look outside. It's pouring down raining. But note something very important. I never got wet. Not even, like, not even a drop. Not my shoes were wet. Nothing was wet on me. And that is what we get in the gospel. In the gospel, as the wrath of God is raining down on people that do not trust Jesus, we are covered through the storm. We're covered through the rain, through the work of Jesus Christ. I don't know, as we talk about discipleship and as I end my time here, I don't know where you are with the Lord. I'm talking about discipleship. And if you don't know Jesus, discipleship is impossible. You must first give your life to Jesus. You can't be a disciple without trusting in the one that we're all following. Like I said in the beginning, discipleship is merely us being formed and made into the image of Christ. And you can't be formed and made into the image of Christ until your heart has been changed. And if your heart is not changed, that same rain that I was talking about that I bypassed, that rain will fall on you. And that's called the wrath of God. And I don't, we don't talk enough about the wrath of God. We talk about the love of God, which is important. We talk about the kindness of God, which is important. We talk about the grace of God, which is important. But please know, at one day, one, at one point, the wrath of God will come pouring down. But just like I was completely covered from the rain, those who have trusted in Jesus will be able to walk free. Let us pray. Father, even as we talk about discipleship, I am concerned that there may be some in here that don't know you. Father, forgive us for assuming that people know you. Forgive us for taking a profession of faith and not seeing fruit from it and not following up. Are you sure you've trusted Jesus? Father, I pray that today, that as we talk about discipleship, I pray that we would think about the work of Christ. But even after that, if we have trusted you, I pray that there would be no one in here that's undiscipled. I pray that no one would walk alone. Truth is, we need somebody in our business. We don't like people in our business, but this Christian walk, we need somebody to challenge us. We need somebody to check us on our Facebook post. We need somebody to check us on our reactions and what we do and the things that we consider normal, the, the, the functional dysfunctions in our life. We need somebody to challenge us. So, Father, would you first send somebody, somebody that's further along in the process of Christ-likeness, not a perfect person, but a person that desires to walk with you and a person that we would consider as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, follow me as I follow Christ, a person that we would consider is worthy of following because they follow you. May this not be discipleship idolatry where we idolize the one that is walking with us, but may we humbly submit our lives to them because in that process, Lord, you mature us Truth is, many of us in this room need maturing. And I'm not talking in natural maturity. Natural maturity says I need to be independent. The more and more independent I am, the more mature I am. 
but it's so opposite with you. With you, maturity is less independence and more dependence on you. Bring somebody in our life. And if we are at a point where we're able to disciple others to look more like you, will you not give us one person, but give us a host of young ladies, a host of young men that we can pour not just intellectual, intellectualism in them, but we can pour our very lives in them. Let us commit ourselves to this process of discipleship, which is not a seasonal thing, but from now until you come back, you've commanded us to make disciples. Father, there may be somebody in here that doesn't know you. I pray today, Lord, that you would save them and that you would help them to realize their desperate need for you. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't, I don't want to end our time today by completely talking about discipleship and brushing by the fact that there may be somebody in here that doesn't know Jesus. And maybe that's you. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. Everybody in this room at one point didn't know Jesus. Everybody. None of us came into the faith because our mother and our father knew Jesus. We all had to come and say, Lord, save me. Save me by your work. And if that's you in here, if you know that today, if you would die today, which death comes for all of us, if you know that you would die today and that you would not spend eternity with Jesus Christ, why don't you slip your hand in the air? Every head bow. Don't be, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. There's nothing spooky. Why don't you, if you don't know Jesus, slip your hand in the air. I see that hand. I see that hand. There's somebody else in here that does not know Jesus. Maybe you're the person that comes to church every week. Maybe you're the person that goes through the rhythms of religiosity, but you are far from the Lord and you know you're far from the Lord. Maybe that's you. Listen, tomorrow's not promised. Give your life to Jesus today. If that's you, would you slip your hand in the air? We simply want to pray for you. I see that hand. We simply want to pray for you. It is the best decision that you will make. Every head bow. It is the best decision that you will make. Because this is the only decision that has eternal impact. There's no other decision that you can make that has eternal impact but this one. Everything, every other decision you make from jobs to what school I'm going to, every other decision is temporary. And none of those decisions you can take with you to heaven. But this one, this one will allow you to spend eternity with God. And here's the truth. If heaven wasn't promised, I would still trust Jesus. Those of you who raised your hand, if you would be so bold to make the declaration and come down front. Again, I'd love to just pray for you. If you slipped your hand in the air, would you meet me down front? Stand right here. If you've slipped your hand in the air, stand, stand right down front. We should be rejoicing in this room.
We should be rejoicing in this room. If you could turn this way, you have made today the decision that will carry with you for the rest of your life. And the same profession that you make today, my prayer is that you will walk this out again through demonstration and that people will see that you are glory reflectors, that you simply reflect the glory of God in your daily lives. And so one of the things I love most about Christianity is that it does not call you to be formed into anybody else's image in here. You can uniquely be you and trust Jesus. That's the beauty in it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these three. Your word tells us that heaven rejoices over one. And here we are with three that have trusted you today. Many of us have, have walked through life and maybe even had a form of godliness, but we didn't know you. But these today say, I want to trust Jesus. And so, Father, my prayer today is that you would, as your word in Ephesians says, empower them with the Holy Spirit. And that empowerment is all the way until the day of redemption. Keep them as you're able to keep them. And Father, moments where they fall and where they struggle and where they, where they don't reflect you, would you bring people into their lives that can challenge them? May they not walk away and be undiscipled, but bring people into their lives. Thank you, Lord, for salvation. I thank you, Lord, that this decision, even though it may seem like it's their decision, ultimately it's your decision. You swoop down from heaven, swoop to their row and save them. And I thank you. And we thank you. And we pray, oh God, that you would help them to realize the importance of walking with you. Do it for your glory, Lord, and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we thank God for these? Can some of y'all hug them? Come on, let's thank God for this. Some of y'all should get out of your seat and hug these people.